The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. It is really, really good to be home. We were back a couple weeks ago, and someone said, Are you guys visiting? Like, they knew us. They knew, but they wondered if we were on vacation. And Chris and I said, We've decided to be visitors for the next 25 years or so. We'll give it a... We'll give you guys a long trial period. We'll see. But no, Ben's right. We had some amazing experiences in New York, and we went to some incredible churches. I, I thought about just pulling pictures off my phone of all the places we had been and the things that we'd been a part of. And, and, and I realized as I was looking back through them last night, every time I was in one of those places, I said, man, I wish my people were with me. Or, man, this place was built by the greatest architects that were alive at the moment, and these people cannot carry a tune in a bucket. Where are my people at in a space like this? And then we would come home and watch the live stream, and you would go a cappella, which is one of my favorite things about being here, and the, the team would drop the mics, and the congregation would sing, and on the live stream, it goes like this. There's no audio. It's, it's this mime show for the last half of the verse. But we loved it anyway. It's really, really good to be home. Before I get started, I want to invite you to something. This October, I'm going to be giving what I call a wounded church workshop. This is for two kinds of people. People who have been through something and people who know someone who's been through something. Does that, does that about cover everybody? Okay. In this weekend, it's going to be a Friday night, all day Saturday, and a Sunday morning. We want to talk seriously about trauma and suffering and Christian faith. We want to talk seriously about some of the ways that we've been shaped to think about those things, from influences outside of our awareness of things that have gone on throughout history that have shaped the way that we think about God and the world and pain. And we want to do it in such a way that not only drives us deeper into our Christian faith, but perhaps puts us in a place to find faith not, no longer to be a barrier in our suffering, but an asset. So I hope that you'll put that on your calendars. It's in October, the 25th through 27th, and we'll talk a lot more about that as it comes. Um, but again, if you've been through something or you know somebody who has, that's going to be a space for you. And somehow I drew kindness. I think it was because I turned down a different one that I felt even less prepared for and ended up with kindness. But I have to admit that I struggle with the fruits of the Spirit just in general. I, I struggle with them because, not because of something that people have taught me, but because of something that I have maybe absorbed just on my own. And it's this. Somehow I've gotten this idea, maybe, I don't know, just deep in my bones, that the fruits of the Spirit are like perpetual, permanent, and always bountiful. Or at least that's the expectation. And what I've learned and what I've come to figure out is that that's just not how life works. Life is not always capable of supporting joy or peace or patience. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like it's capable of supporting kindness or goodness or gentleness. Sometimes love doesn't even feel really on the table. And so what I hope 
is this summer that we will come to the fruits of the Spirit and walk away without guilt or feelings of inadequacy. But instead that we'll come and recognize that these are gifts that God gives to us, not things that we muster up by our sheer determination or just by an act of will. I will be loving, gentle, kind. But that we recognize that these are gifts from God. So if we find that these aren't in our lives the way that we feel they should be, maybe we won't ask, what am I doing wrong? But we'll say, how can I open myself up to receive these fruits from God and from God's people? Because one of the patterns that we find in Scripture is that you are to give as you have received. Right? Scripture says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Comfort one another with the comfort you have received. And when it comes to the fruits of the Spirit, sometimes we find that some of these we have not been recipients of much in our lives. But for those of us who have, we should remember that to whom much is given, much is expected. And before we really jump in, I just want to clarify that kindness has a couple of imposters. They are politeness and niceness. Politeness and niceness are the people at Chick-fil-A that say, my pleasure. (laughs) I know, I've been on the payroll more than once in my life. Right? Politeness and niceness are not the same as kindness. I think in in our normal language, they've become the same thing. Right? Someone says, my pleasure, and you say, man, those people at Chick-fil-A are so kind. That's not what the fruit of the Spirit of kindness is. I like to think about it this way. Politeness and niceness are merely the failure to be a terrible human being in a given situation. Right? It's just the, the inability to be awful at the moment it doesn't necessarily do much for anyone. What I wanna do this morning is I wanna guide us through three ways that I think people have thought about and have lived out their Christian faith as a frame to think about kindness. And the best way I know to do this is to draw on a lasting American cultural institution, which is reality television. (laughs) I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One. Reality TV always touches on a current mood or need or feeling in society. You want to get the pulse of American society, reality TV is a good place. Maybe not to find the good things in society, but certainly to find what's happening. The second is that reality TV is a kind of reality that people relate to or they want to relate to in their ordinary lives. Right? They may envision themselves in the place of some contestant in this show, or they may long to be given an opportunity to participate in that scenario, or they may be so grateful that they're not caught in the next challenge or the next uh, elimination. But they try to relate it back to their own life. And the third reason that reality TV is helpful is if it doesn't resonate, it goes away. So those, those shows that have stayed with us for a while that have continued to speak into our life, I think have some impact and help us, can help us to frame some things that may otherwise become a little uh, difficult to discern. 
So when we talk about Christian faith, there are really three shows that I wanna walk us through real briefly this morning before we get to kindness. And I want you to think of these as frames in which people approach Christian faith. The first is the long-standing show, The Apprentice, right? This is a show that speaks to constructions of authority and power. The sole individual that matters in this scenario is the one at the top. The gap between where the contestant is and where the boardroom lies is the objective, is the drive motivator. I want to be from where I am to literally the right hand of the man. And if I'm gonna get there, if I'm gonna get to the one who can say, you're hired or you're fired, I'll do whatever he says. Sometimes Christian faith works that way. It appeals to authority and to power. God feels over us and we just wanna do whatever we're told in order that we can ascend literally to the right hand. The second is now, I believe in its 38th season, I didn't even know that was a thing, which is Survivor. It's still going, apparently. I mean, that shows you how well connected I am. But Survivor functions in fear and shame. It functions in a way in which it's much more narcissistic than life in the world of The Apprentice. It's about my survival by any means necessary to be anyone but the one cast off the island. You're willing to detach from relationships, to break alliances, to bend the rules. You become paranoid. You become manipulative. The entire game is a desperate attempt merely to survive. And unfortunately, Christian faith sometimes becomes that way as well that all we're trying to do is make sure that we stay clean enough, holy enough, righteous enough, faithful enough, repentant enough, that at the end of the day, we're not kicked off the island. The third, I think, is a more hopeful vision, and it comes from the show, The Voice. Here, an open invitation is extended to an artist to join a community of care and formation in order that together the full flourishing of this artist may commence. The goal is pursued in relationship and it happens in a way that yes, there is a competition in the show but it's not done in a way that you undermine the other, right? It is the goal in relationship to become the best that you can be, to become your full self. And here, people find that this response to a compelling invitation to care and to relationship and to coaching is transformative. It produces a different kind of life than the one we see in the other shows. And sometimes, Christian faith can be that way. Sometimes we can be called into a beautiful thing instead of a scary thing or a shameful thing. But what does this all have to do with kindness? My commitment is this, that these frames shape the way that we encounter and interpret scripture, and therefore the way that we think about God. 
And two of these forms of Christian faith prevent us from ever thinking about God as kind. Now, there's still the expectation that you be kind, but it's difficult to think about God as kind. I want you to listen to a story you know well from John 4. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. And I want you to pay attention to the kinds of emotions that you have towards the characters in the story what you presume about their background, what you hear as their story that's between the lines. And then we'll come back to our frames. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples, and so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. How did you hear this story? If your background is similar to mine, you heard it through one of two frames, authority and power, or fear and shame. It would go something like this. Jesus was having a rough run in Judea, so he went back home. And on his way, he stopped in a place where no Jew likes to stop, which is where Samaritans live. And a woman came, but not just any woman, a problematic one. And she came by herself in the middle of the day. And Jesus was thirsty. And he asked for a drink. And the woman said, you don't have anything to drink with. That's rough. And they have a conversation, and Jesus says, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you go get your husband? I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're absolutely right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you have right now is not your husband. Like, can you hear the tone, right? And the woman realizes, oh, man, not only does this guy know me, but I've messed up. So she tries to distract him. Hey, there's this conversation about uh, which mountain we should worship on. What do you think about that? It's like, how's the weather? Right? And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. Eventually, just to remind you, we got it right. But anyway, someday everybody's going to worship in spirit and in truth. And she leaves. She goes back home and says, this guy called me out like nobody ever has before. Maybe he's the one. Come and see. You know the problem with that story? That's actually not the story. That she's alone? We don't know. Why is she there in the middle of the day? Doesn't matter. Is Jesus getting on to her? There's no sign. We've been formed to think of these moments where faith has the capacity to, to come to life as moments where God has to say, let me tell you something about you. And oftentimes, that revelation is not a comfortable one, we presume. You see, the early church, really up until the 1500s, the church thought of this woman as nothing but righteous. In fact, the early church spoke of her as the woman named Fotina who became a martyr for her faith after going far, far from Jacob's well, spreading the good news. You see, I think sometimes we think about salvation as having to begin with these gotcha moments. Jesus wanted a drink. This woman wasn't particularly helpful, but she needs to get it right. Gotcha. But that's not how this story works. She goes back, and the people are compelled by her story. Who's compelled by the story 
this guy told me how awful of a human being I am. Would you like to come? You're next. Right? I'm not going. I already know myself well enough. I don't need somebody who knows more than I do about myself to volunteer to make me the next candidate for this this, uh, divine gotcha moment. This woman is converted because she experiences the kindness of God in Jesus. You see, what's important about kindness, because it's a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's not niceness or politeness. Kindness is not a revelation of who you are. It is a revelation of who God is in the moment. For this woman, this is a revelation that God is willing, first of all, to speak to her. Second of all, to ask to be in some kind of contact with her. Remember, Jews and Samaritans don't do this. And then this kindness of God is willing to answer the burning question that Samaritans and Jews have been fighting over for centuries as they both try and figure out what God wants from them. The kindness of God listens and answers. And then the kindness of God doesn't call her out. But the kindness of God names her reality. You see, marriage in the first century was not a stable institution. Men married much older than the women that they married. And there are all kinds of ways in which life ends abruptly and unplanned in the first century. Not only that, but if you're a woman from a family not of particularly large means, it's not uncommon for you to be married multiple times. For this woman, she's most likely so destitute that she no longer has a dowry to be married. And so now she's in a relationship with a man who is not her husband because she has no economic value to bring to the table. Maybe it's exploitative, maybe it's just an older man who needs care in his last years. It doesn't matter. Jesus names her reality as a way of saying, I see you as a human being, not as a Samaritan, not as a woman, not as someone who's been through a lot and maybe I'm worried that some of that might rub off on me, which is sometimes the way we treat people who suffer. Instead, Jesus comes and says, I see you and I can bring you something that no one else can. And that is the thing that sends her running without her water jar back to town. It says, there was this man who told me everything I've ever done and everything I've ever lived through and everything that I have ever experienced. And he still spoke with me. Maybe he's the one. You see, this is why kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Because it's not about us. It is about the revelation of God 
to us and for us. And for some of us who have been raised in ways where the kindness of God is probably a little too abstract to really wrap our heads around. I include myself here. That's a lot to take in. That God comes to us in kindness. He comes in all those other things. Holiness and righteousness and justice and power and authority. Certainly. But they all feed through God's kindness. And this is how the story ends. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, notice some have already believed just from what she has said. When they came, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. He's not the king of the world. He's not the ruler of the world. He's not the boss of the world. He is the savior of the world. And it is this God in kindness who comes to this woman, who comes to these people with whom there has been literally centuries of blood spilled with kindness. And no matter the history and no matter the hostility, the walls fall. You see, I think the world is starved for kindness. I think it's to the place where anything that's remotely close to kindness we will run towards will even take niceness and politeness in a pinch. I think it's become such this way that even the things that seem to dominate our lives that seem to be remote from us are pushing us towards kindness. Even the algorithms of our social media push us to those things that make us feel like the world might be a place where kindness is possible. Even the way in which leaders of business and government are beginning to speak about what it means to be part of the human family. We all recognize that we are living in a desert of kindness. And God comes to us today. And he says, I am not the God above you. I am not the God over you. I am not the God angry with you. I am not the God here to put you in your place so that you can be in the right place. I am the God who is here because you exist and because you matter and because you cannot give to the world what you yourself have not received. And so God says, I bring you my kindness. Wherever my spirit is, their kindness can bloom. Their kindness can overflow 
their kindness can spill out in ways that surprise everyone involved in a wounded world kindness is a gift and a grace that says nothing about us and everything about the God who is among us and for us about the God who opposes the death of kindness in our society. I'm tired of living in a world that functions like The Apprentice and Survivor. Anybody agree with me here? Anybody, anybody tired of just trying to make it out on top? I'm tired. And I find myself just gravitating to anything that just feels remotely nice. And Jesus comes to us and says, don't settle for water that you have to dip over and over and over again. I come with water that never runs out, with kindness that never stops, that never has a boundary, that never depends on you getting it right. This is the one you have found in Jesus and in his people. And so today, may we come to know God.